The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Scripture reading this morning is the book of John, chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with the, his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. My name is Isaiah Lewis. I'm on staff here as the church planning resident, and uh, it's a joy, again, to be opening the word with you this morning. Uh, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, uh, they will be on the screen at various points during the message. But there's also a Bible under your seat, and you can find John chapter 6 uh, on page 837. It's my privilege this morning to really set up in the Gospel of John one of the most provocative and misunderstood passages in the entire Gospel, and perhaps in the entire New Testament. And we get to do that this morning by looking at the two miracles that precede that discourse found in the rest of John 6. So the question I want to begin with this morning is perhaps an unexpected question, but it's this. Can you remember the first time as a child that your expectations were unmet? You had expectations of an event or a person or something, and those expectations went unfulfilled. I was thinking about that question this week, and this is the story that came to mind. I grew up in New Hampshire, 
And uh, my family, every summer, would spend a couple of weeks in the north woods of New Hampshire, just south of the Canadian border. My folks owned a hunting shack up there. It literally was a shack, not much more than that. But it was on a lake, and we'd have many, many good memories up there. My brother and I would spend all day just running around, getting hot and sweaty, as only five and six and seven-year-old boys can get in the summer in New Hampshire. And on this particular day, my dad was off to the side, sitting in a lawn chair, reading, I don't know, a newspaper or a book or something. And off to his side, on the ground, he had what I thought was a glass of ice-cold Coke, Coca-Cola. Well, more accurately, it was probably Sam's Choice Cola that I thought it was. And being as thirsty as I was, and as infrequently as we were able to have soft drinks, I thought, this is my chance. Dad's by himself. He's in a good mood. I'll ask if I can have a drink of his Coke. So that's what I did. I walked up and said, Dad, can I just have a sip of your Coke? In hindsight, the slight smile on his face should have triggered some skepticism about what was actually in the glass, but it didn't. He said yes, and I took a nice long swig of what was ice-cold coffee. Now, today, that wouldn't be a big deal, but my palate has developed over 25 years, and my taste at that point was nothing but pure awful in that sip. I sputtered for the next 15 minutes, my surprise, and Dad laughed really hard, and we still have many good laughs recounting and thinking about that particular memory. But the reality is that unmet expectations often result in good, humorous memories. Unmet expectations are what it means to be human, part of what it means to be human. Our expectations are unmet on almost a daily basis. And it really demonstrates to us that our longings cannot truly be met strictly and only within a materialistic universe. We were made for something more than simply materialistic existence. And so these unmet expectations become painful when a person, for instance, is involved and is the object of those unmet expectations. Perhaps you've had expectations of ongoing healthy family relationships, only to experience emotional pain and relational tension. Maybe you've had expectations of a growing family, only to experience miscarriage. Maybe you've had expectations of a smooth job transition, only to find out that it seems like your boss hates you. Maybe you've had expectations of a happy marriage, only to come face to face with the depth of your selfishness and that of your spouse. In John 6, we see an entire group of people surrounding Jesus with expectations, lots of expectations. Look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. 
Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. These words ought to be a bit mystifying to us. Now, Jesus is undoubtedly the king. We've heard that. We've prayed that this morning. The kingdom of God is the theme of the entire Bible, and Jesus is the king of that kingdom. The crowd considers Jesus to be the prophet, and in your Bible, it probably has the word prophet capitalized because this refers back to Deuteronomy 18, where God himself sets the expectations for a prophet that would come after Moses. Deuteronomy 18, 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So what's going on? The crowds are actually making the right assumption about Jesus. He is indeed the prophet that was to come. And if he was the prophet, then he must be the Messiah because those two ideas are inextricably linked in the Old Testament. And if he's the Messiah, and we know that that assumption is correct, John chapter four and the Samaritan woman at the well discovered that. If those two things are true and they are, then what does that mean? Well, the crowds began to lay their expectations upon Jesus for what that meant. What would his kingship look like? And their expectations went unmet. So the three verses we just read from John 6, these are the linchpins or the linchpin that ties together two miracles. The first is the feeding of the 5,000 and the second is Jesus walking on the water. And in these verses, we are confronted with the theme that is common in the New Testament. Jesus' kingship and his kingdom are not what we expect. And this linchpin event gives us our big idea, and Pastor Justin has already referenced it in his prayer. The kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. The kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. It's like, unlike, rather, any other kingdom. Whether we're talking about the sort of formal kingdom with a governmental structure and pageantry and tradition, or we're talking about the sorts of kingdoms we like to try to build in our own lives and experiences. No matter what other kingdom we compare it to, there is no other kingdom like the kingdom of God. And this passage shows us that the kingdom of Jesus contrasts with every other kingdom in two ways. So let's look at these two contrasts under these headings. Number one, the kingdom of God is upside down in who provides, and the kingdom of God is upside down in what is pursued. So notice with me, first of all, the kingdom of God is upside down in who provides for whom? The first 13 verses chronicle what is perhaps the most famous of Jesus's miracles. It's the only one actually recorded in all four gospels. 
And John sets up this miracle in verses one through four. Look at verse one with me. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Now, notice in those verses, three things. First, there's a large crowd. Second, they're following him because he's performed signs. And third, the Passover is at hand. Now, the Passover was to the nation of Israel what the 4th of July is to Americans. It was a festival that celebrated their independence from Egypt and their dependence upon the God who delivered them from their captivity in Egypt and the God who had established a covenant with them. It was an independent, dependent day, actually week or more. And Israel had been observing this particular festival for 1,500 years by the time Jesus is walking on the earth. You can read more about that in Exodus chapter 12 and following, but the setting for the Passover festival was this. Before God delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt, he gave specific instructions to his people. In fact, the very night before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, let them go, what the people of Israel were to do was to kill a lamb, a spotless lamb. They were to take its blood and put it on the doorposts of their home and on the lintel over top. That blood would mark the household off. And then that family was to take the lamb that had been killed and they were to eat it. And that evening, as the judgment of God was being poured out Outside of those homes, the people within those homes who had covered their doors in the blood of the lamb were spared from the judgment of God. It had marked them off, protecting them from judgment. Now, John intends this to be the background with which we read the entirety of John chapter 6. And as he mentions the feast, he then continues in verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. This crowd is so large that it would take more than 200 days worth of wages to feed them. In our five-day work week, that would be roughly 10 months of your earnings this year in equivalence to feed this crowd. The account continues. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. <laughs> but what are they for so many? Jesus answers, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish. 
as much as they wanted. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now this miracle is so well known that the magnitude of what happened in those verses just kind of passes us by. Familiarity, I think, has bred a bit of contempt for what actually has taken place here. But rather than simply rehearsing the details that we've just read, let's consider two facts about this miracle and allow those to sink in. First of all, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is providing people with bread in a wilderness-like area. John is intending to remind us of further details surrounding the original Passover feast. After Israel's great exodus from Egypt, the people of God, as they are in the wilderness, begin to complain against God. And we read in Exodus 16 this, And the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. God responds in this way. Lord says to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them, at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning, you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And the morning dew, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Jesus is setting up in this miracle the provocative and beautiful discourse that we will get to next week, which is the bread of life discourse. He's going to declare himself to be the bread of life. And in this particular miracle, he is now physically feeding crowds of people in a way remarkably similar to the children of Israel being fed by God centuries earlier with bread from heaven. So that's the first fact to notice. But there's a second fact. This miracle actually began as a test. Did you catch that? Jesus, in order to test Philip asks him, where are we going to get food for all these people? Jesus pointed out a need and then asked his disciples how they were going to meet that need. What they had was completely inadequate. It's not like it could have gotten part of the job done. It was a child's lunch. So the disciples looked to Jesus to provide the answer. In a normal kingdom, the people provide for the king. 
God had warned Israel of this reality when they demanded a king back in 1 Samuel 18. God had said five times, five different times in five different ways in that passage that when they got a king, that king would take the best of everything, the best of their sons and daughters, the best of their fields, their vineyards, their servants, their livestock. He would take the best of it all to provide for himself as king. But this miracle teaches us that the kingdom of God is unlike any other kingdom. It's an upside down kingdom. Because in the kingdom of God, the people don't provide for the king. King Jesus provides for his people. This miracle demonstrates how King Jesus surfaces the greatest unsolvable human needs, makes us to feel our inability to meet that need, and then by his grace alone addresses the need. Friend, your need this morning is greater than you could possibly imagine. It's greater than you may realize. Now, each one of us have many many needs. And they're not trivial. There are financial needs represented in this room. Needs for emotional support, for physical healing, for provision, for restored relationships. But our greatest need is much deeper and greater than we really recognize. Our greatest need is freedom, freedom from our sin, freedom from our shame, freedom from our guilt, freedom from fear, freedom from the chains of our past, freedom to live into the love and relationship offered by God our Father through his incredible grace. That is our greatest need. And that grace comes through the one who would provide his own self as the Passover lamb. The one through whom the people of God would enter by his shed blood, whose blood would avert the wrath of God justly pointed at us in his justice. The blood who would allow us enter into the freedom of being God's children. Your need is unexpectedly greater than you may realize, but Jesus isn't looking for you to provide something for him. He desires to provide for you if you will receive his provision. And his willingness to provide for you is demonstrated no more clearly than when he laid down his life upon a cross absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf so that you and I can be reconciled to a holy God. This gets to the very heart of worship. This is why we gather on Sunday mornings. We are gathering to worship God. Does that mean we are bringing something to God that he does not have? Does he lack something that he only receives when the people of God gather together to give it to him? No, how do we worship God? How do we glorify God when we come together in this way? It is not for us to bring something to him. It is for us to declare our need for what he has. It is for us to declare that we are needy and he is the one who provides. Through the blood of Jesus, 
So as we enter here on Sunday mornings and are called to worship and we confess our sin and we are assured of God's pardon, as we sing songs of praise together, as we profess our faith together, we are experiencing the grace of a kingdom that is entirely upside down and of a king that is worthy of all honor and glory. So allow Jesus's provision to foster your daily dependence upon him. He is a good and a gracious king who provides for his people. The upside down kingdom of God is unlike any other kingdom. It contrasts with those kingdoms, first, by who provides for whom. But second, the kingdom of God contrasts with every other kingdom in what is pursued. Look at verse 14, would you? Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew. Matthew's account of this event tells us that Jesus is withdrawing to pray. Consider the contrast between what is offered to Jesus and what Jesus actually chooses, what he pursues. You have 5,000 men, just men, plus women and children that are present. They have all seen this miracle worker do something that has not been seen since God did it 1,500 years ago. And they are ready to make him king. They are ready to follow him by force, if necessary. A militia of 5,000 men are ready to follow Jesus and begin the next step of what they're expecting from their Messiah King. Revolt, revolution, deliverance from the oppression of Rome. And in a normal kingdom, these 5,000 men ready to make Jesus King, this is what every man dreams of in a normal kingdom. They are means to power, to importance. These men represent the means to accomplish great things, the means to have and hold control over people. What are these 5,000 men? They are in actuality a platform, a massive platform. But Jesus is no ordinary man. And what does he pursue instead of this platform? Solitude communion with God. Because in the upside down kingdom of God, it's not only the provision that is upside down, but pursuits are also upside down. Jesus pursues the source of real power and it has nothing to do with 5,000 men ready to make him king. He pursues the presence of God in prayer over the power and platform of the people. And then he pursues relationships above the platform. Look at verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. 
when they had rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now we can't miss what's happening in these short verses. This is no less an astounding miracle as the first. Jesus is the sovereign over all of nature, both the elements and the very natural laws of nature. He walks on the water and then he immediately transports the boat as soon as he touches it to dry, dry land. You see, this is not the first time God brings deliverance to his people by means of his presence as they cross a sea. This story is meant to be a reminder of the exodus that is past and the greater exodus that is to come. It's yet another surprising deliverance of God's people in their weakness by means of God's presence in their midst. And in Jesus' kingdom, his presence with his people matters more than any platform. Do you recognize and understand that Jesus is present with his people today, right now, in this moment, because of his spirit? And this example of our king from John 5 motivates our living and our pursuits as we participate in the kingdom of God under King Jesus. I can remember like yesterday, a conversation I had when I was in college, either my freshman or sophomore year. I was sitting in my friend's dorm room and while I believe my motives to some degree were good, I have no doubt they were also mixed. As it related to me wanting to be in pastoral ministry. And I related to my friend that I didn't want to pastor a small church. I wanted to pastor a large church so that I could influence more people for the glory of God and the exaltation of Jesus. I was communicating a desire for platform in order to have influence. And my friend courageously challenged my thinking that day. The warped thinking that I needed a large platform in order to influence people for God. And God, in his grace, met me through my friend that day to open my eyes to the truth. I had begun to believe the lie that influence required platform. And ironically, that influential moment in my life took place not through any platform that my friend had, but simply because we were in relationship as friends. The world tells us to grow our influence by growing our platform. Whether that is the social media platform or the business platform or the community platform. But King Jesus, as the king of an upside down kingdom, adjusts our focus. He distinguishes between what is important and what is truly significant what the world views as valuable and what is actually eternally significant. 
Having a platform may be important in our culture, but it's actually insignificant in the kingdom of God. And that is really good news for people like you and people like me. What is significant, what actually exerts influence is presence. Pursuing the presence of God by means of fellowship with him, enjoying the presence of Jesus right now by means of his spirit, and then taking our indwelt present presence into the spheres and the relationships and the spaces to which God has called us. So friends, don't miss this. Jesus invites you by his spirit to enter his presence daily. Regularly seek the presence of God over or in prayer over the tyranny of what seems urgent and important. Jesus invites you to take your spirit-transformed presence into those spaces to which he has called you, to the people he has called you to serve, whether that space is a kitchen or a boardroom, a cubicle, a nursery, a schoolroom, or an office. In pursuing relationships over platforms, what is Jesus doing? He's actually dignifying this kind of work. He inspires us by his example to labor for eternal significance, not just temporal importance. So to the follower of Jesus laboring in near obscurity or anonymity, to the Quorum Deo kids worker serving faithfully, to the student swimming in schoolwork, to the mom and dad loving a child with special needs, to the son or daughter caring for aging parents, to the father investing faithfully in your children. Hear what your king says. As a follower of Jesus, these pursuits are eternally significant. They matter. King Jesus sees you he knows your work. He is honored by it. And your pursuit of presence and relationship with others over platform reflects his very heart. Your faithfulness brings him joy. And in a world that considers important only that which is platformed, you are doing something significant with your influence, simply by pursuing the presence of God and pursuing and engaging with those around you for his glory. Friends, what would happen if we as a church chose to orient our lives this way? If we were reflecting daily the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. We'd be living lives of real consequence, lives that are compelling. If we start resting in and living out of Jesus's provision for us in the gospel, and then take our spirit indwelt presence into the world wherever God has called us for this season of time, we will be honoring our King we will be following in his footsteps 
And that upside down influence is compelling because it demonstrates to a watching world that the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. And Jesus, as the king of such a radical kingdom, he is worthy of being followed. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have demonstrated your love by sending your only begotten Son so that all who believe in him might live through him. Lord Jesus, you continue to provide for our needs after providing for our greatest needs by means of your work on the cross. You have given us life internally, and you are sustaining our life right now, and we praise you for that. Spirit of Jesus, your presence renews us each and every day. It, he energizes our work. You assure us of the Father's love for us. Father, we pray that you would pour out your Spirit on your church that we may fulfill our Lord's command to preach the gospel to all people, declaring that you have provided for our sinfulness through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and that you have given us your very presence through the spirit of Jesus. Thank you for calling us into this upside-down kingdom through our incredible King, Jesus. We praise you. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.